to the 15th chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 15 will begin in chapter in verse 16 in just a moment. One of the things about the life of Jesus on earth that we don't consider as often as others is something the prophet Isaiah actually said about him as the suffering servant that he would be from Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 of that chapter. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We never want to downplay or underestimate the fact that Jesus died as a ransom for us to be the atonement for our sins, all the wicked things that we've done and thought and said, the worship we have not given to God, the obedience we have not offered up. He is our high priest that offers up His own body as our sacrificial lamb that we might be fully and finally forgiven. But notice, if you will, some of the other things Isaiah said about His suffering. It's never less than what we just said, ever. But it is Perhaps more. He not only bore our sins and transgressions and iniquities, He bore our griefs and our sorrows, beloved. All of this about us was put on Christ. And not just as a formality. Right? For Isaiah says He was a man of sorrows. That's how He could be described. He was acquainted with grief. Jesus felt what we feel. He felt pain and loss and sadness and shame. He was characterized by the sorrow that comes from this according to Isaiah. And not just at his death, but throughout his life on the earth. Sorrow described Jesus. It characterized him. It doesn't mean he was sullen and forlorn and never laughed or smiled or any of those things. But Jesus always carried sorrow with him. And now at Calvary, as we finally come to the actual crucifixion in Mark, we only have two more weeks left in this gospel. He will bear the full force, the full weight of all of this hurt and grief and sorrow and sin and iniquity and wrath and judgment. Jesus Christ should have been honored and worshipped, but instead he was abused and mocked, but not without a purpose. This is the will of God to redeem us. He died for what we do, yes, and what we have not done, that we ought to have done, yes, and for the pain of what has been done to us. Jesus not only died to forgive us of all our sin, but to bear on Himself, in Himself, all of our pain so that we might be made completely whole. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the opportunity to proclaim it, to hear it, to believe it. Father, please help me to speak this morning. Fill me with your Holy Spirit for this message and for this passage. I beg you, God, guide my every word and every sentence. And watch over everyone who will hear. May we hear correctly, Father. May you have your way by your Spirit in us. Do what we cannot do with our words, but can only be accomplished through yours. Bring the dead to life. Comfort the hurting. Convict the unrepentant and the arrogant. Father, have your way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 16 through 20 of Mark 15. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. The account of Jesus' crucifixion sits in between these two scenes in which in Mark he subjected to horrible mockery. The first scene of mockery is the Roman soldiers who ridicule him prior to his crucifixion. They mock him with a parody of how they would normally treat a king. A king would normally be treated with praises and honor and all kinds of pomp and recognition. But Roman soldiers were known for this sort of thing. When it came to those they considered to be pretend kings or unworthy kings, this is what they would often do, what they're doing to Jesus. Once Pilate delivers Jesus over to the mob, things get very ugly very quickly. Now everyone is piling on, gloating, mocking. First, if you remember back in verse 15, Pilate had Jesus scourged which means he was tied to a post with his back bare while he was whipped by this whip that was uh, laced with pieces of bone and metal. It would have ripped pieces, large pieces, eventually off his skin for one reason, to humiliate the prisoners why they did this, but also to weaken him so that the crucifixion wouldn't take too much of their time. In many cases, a prisoner sentenced to scourging didn't even make it to the crucifixion. It was that brutal and bloody and Traumatic. They took Jesus to the Praetorium, which was a portion of Herod's palace, and called the whole garrison together. That's one-tenth of a Roman legion. This is 600 soldiers. It was a very large crowd of soldiers that began to mock and to beat Jesus. They clothed him with a purple garment, the color reserved, of course, for royalty, mocking him because he had claimed to be the king. They even made a makeshift crown of thorns from a plant that had extremely sharp thorns, pressed it down on his head. They saluted him, mocking even more like they would normally say, Hail Caesar. Now they're mocking him, Hail King of the Jews. They hit him on the head with a reed. They spit on him. They got down on their knees, pretended to worship him. Once they had their fill, they finally let him out. To be crucified. Why is Jesus enduring this? Why this at all? Why did Jesus have to suffer this? It's not like Jesus has to bleed a certain amount of blood, a certain number of pints to make his sacrifice acceptable. That's not required. It's, it's the principle of his death. Jesus had to suffer mockery also in order to be our atoning sacrifice. What does that 
have to do with it? Why does he have to subject himself to mockery? Beloved, because mockery is the wrath of God against the unrighteous. According to the psalmist in Psalm 89, 38, and that is what Jesus became for us. In this moment, he is becoming sin for us. So God's wrath is legitimately going to be poured out on him in full force. We deserve, remember this, and of course now it sounds archaic, but it is what it is. We deserve not only to be killed by God for our sinfulness and rebellion, we deserve the full weight of His righteous anger. Not just to get accidentally covered in collateral damage. We deserve for at least one moment in time for all of it to be poured out on us. And Jesus is bearing that for us. But He didn't just suffer in death. Consider this This morning, he is also suffering in life. He always did. Mockery exists in the first place in our world because of sin. If you travel on this earth, you're eventually going to feel most, if not all, of the effects of the fall on you. Every time someone dies and we have to suffer the pain of death, that's the pain of the fall. Right? It's not every time we're sick, every time somebody's hurt, every time somebody's killed. It's not that God is going person to person, just needling people and punishing them. It's that he has subjected our world to a curse through which we will suffer sometimes when it's not even really our fault. He identified with us not just to die for our sin, but to feel the effects of it like we all do. Jesus felt all the damage that sin does. All of it. We sometimes think of the cross in such forensic, legal terms. Beloved, do we grasp how much is going on here? Exactly what it is, the extent of what Jesus was suffering and bearing on himself and feeling. He felt all the damage sin does from the wrath of God on it to the damage we inflict on ourselves and others And what we suffer from others as a result of sin and God's wrath on the whole world. Everything about us needs redeemed. Everything. We need much more than behavior modification. Sometimes when we are born again or hear of of the, the, you know, the theology of being born again that the Bible teaches, it's like we think in our minds, all that's happening is now you don't go to places you used to go. You don't say things you used to say. You don't do things you used to do. Beloved, that's not all there is that's messed up about us. Where we go, what we say, what we do. We are irreparably damaged by the fall. We are cursed. We are still going to die if our Lord tarries, even if in our hearts we know Christ. We need much more than just some instructions or behavior modification. Right? When we build the, the, the church like that, the point of Christianity like that, the gospel like that, we sound the same as Dr. Phil. We sound the same as any psychologist. Right? I've been in therapy before. Yeah. You know what they say, at least in that kind of therapy? Have you ever thought about just being more thankful? Right? 
or Christian therapy. Your problem is that you just lack faith. Thanks. I'm glad I'm paying for that. Thank you. Right? Did you ever think about keeping a notebook at the side of your bed and every night before you go to bed, write down two or three things that you're thankful about for that day? Listen, that might be very helpful to certain folks in certain cases. So for those folks, I'm not belittling that. I'm saying our problem is deeper than a simple, why don't you just think differently about this? For most of us, for people that genuinely suffer from the mental effects of the fall, it's not simply a matter of just deciding to feel better. Right? There, we might experience loss in our lives that so devastates us we can't ever recover. I know a lady back in Brawley, California, wonderful friends to us, her and her husband. We still are in contact all the time, still talk. Rasan and Flora are their names. And a couple years ago when I was still in Brawley, one afternoon or early afternoon, Rasan comes into my office. He says, I need to talk to you. So what's wrong? And he said, Flora's sister and her five-year-old son and her 19-year-old daughter have just been murdered, shot to death by her ex-boyfriend that is the father of both of these children. And then he went home and shot himself to his home and shot himself. She has never recovered. She's a believer. She loves Christ. She's clinging to the hem of his robe. She is not getting better. She's probably not going to get better. No matter how many times we tell her the rhetorical we, right? Well, just, just have faith and, 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 you know, God has a purpose in your pain. Stop saying that to people. It just hurts to live here. It just hurts. And beloved, part of what Jesus is doing on the cross is feeling it. Bearing it as he did. Why did he live for 33 years? You ever thought about that? We don't have anything on Jesus except one little conversation when he was 12 between his birth and the last three to three and a half years of his life. Why? Why is it even necessary then? Because he was a human being. He got to know people and work and live and feel and laugh and cry. All of it. The whole experience being a human being. He bore it all. And here we're seeing, no matter what you do, this is what we deserve. This is the effect. He's suffering for our sins. He's being mocked for our sins. He's being mocked because he's not just going to be a pretend substitute, but a complete substitute. Feel the wrath of God towards... God isn't just angry at what we do. He is angry because it hurts us also. And the whole world is broken because of it. Animals suffer because of it. Nature suffers because of it. Children suffer because of it. Babies suffer because of it. Freak accidents all the time. My goodness, how broken is the world? How do people just die in their own homes? God sent Jesus to be our complete Substitute to bear everything that sin does to us also. Pick it up in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Excuse me. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Mark's focus in his account of the crucifixion is the mocking that Jesus suffered. We don't read about the nails here. Do you notice that? We read about the mocking he endures on the way to the cross and while he's hanging on it and as he's dying. And he notes a very, Mark notes a very interesting detail in verse 21. Like, why is he saying this? A man named Simon of Cyrene happened to be passing by and was compelled by the soldiers to carry the cross of Jesus. Compelled, by the way, is the word uh, for how animals were forced to the slaughter in Greek. So they weren't like, excuse me, sir, would you mind carrying this cross? No, he was just dragged to it and made to do it. And it wasn't the full cross Jesus was carrying or that Simon had to carry. This would have been the horizontal cross beam that would be affixed to the vertical beam that was already in the ground on Golgotha where these crucifixions took place. Normally, of course, the prisoner was made to carry this, but by this time Jesus can barely stand up. But he says this, Simon, it'd be one thing if he just gave us his name, is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does this matter? Why do we care who Simon is, let alone who his two sons are, in the middle of the gospel that the whole world is going to read? It matters to his readers, beloved, all of them. Don't forget that Mark is writing to a beleaguered church, most likely in Rome proper at this time. When Paul, if you remember sent greetings to the church in Rome, in Romans 16, 13, about 20 years after this, he mentions Rufus. Scholars believe Mark mentioned him because he was writing to the Christians in Rome. They would have known Rufus and Alexander. And so Mark is signaling and probably knew their father also, Simon. Ask them. Those two guys, they were there. Talk to them about it. Ask them about it. In verse 22, they bring Jesus to the place of a skull. Probably a reference to how the hill appeared to be or maybe um, took on the shape of a human skull. Here they offer him a mix of wine and myrrh that was meant to dull his senses to the pain they were about to endure. It's the only humane part about a crucifixion. I don't understand why they did it at all, but Jesus wouldn't take it. He would suffer the full weight of this torment, beloved. He wouldn't even take the smallest reprieve they gave. It, it wouldn't have changed his crucifixion. It wouldn't have changed. Wouldn't have changed his atoning power. Why didn't he just take it? Have a little bit of relief? Because sometimes you and I don't have any, and he's going to feel that too, even as the beloved, only begotten Son of God. In verse twenty-four, they divided his garments. Right after they had stripped him of the purple cloak, they put on him. Back in verse seventeen. They put his own clothes back on him. Here, they strip him once again to be crucified. It's likely, 
It's hard to find a definitive answer, but it's likely that when Jesus was crucified, he was naked. And this was horrible. People didn't just hang up there. People lost control of their bodily functions. They screamed. They bled. This is horrendous. You you talk about shame. And then they gambled for his clothes. Just as Psalm 22, 18 prophesied of God's anointed one. He will be like nothing to the world. Completely disregarded. Completely oppressed. Completely made fun of. Mocked. Derided. Punished. Well, now all the preparations are finished. It's the third hour. In verse 25, it's about 9 a.m. And already beaten, bloody, naked, and dying, Jesus is crucified. Nailed to the cross, remember. We know that from the other gospel writers. He wasn't simply tied to the cross. Here, he enters yet another level, the ultimate level, the final level of suffering for the sake of his people, for you and me. Jesus wasn't crucified by common thieves and robbers and murderers. As Robert Capon says, he was crucified by the very well-scrubbed hands of deeply religious people. Mark writes in verse 26 that an inscription was made of what he had been accused of, the king of the Jews. When a person was crucified, the Roman custom was to affix a statement of, or a summary of the charges against the condemned one there on the vertical beam of the cross. John tells us it was Pilate himself that made this inscription. He had it written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so that as many people as possible could read it. We find that in John 19, 19 and 20. We don't know that Pilate even believed that Jesus was a king as he understood it. But when the religious leaders of Israel asked Pilate to change a little bit in John 19, 21 to 22, of course, they go to him. They, they don't want to look bad. Look, you know, like the Jews are, are you know, this is their king. So they said, could, could you please fix that so that it says this man said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I wrote, I wrote. Right? You lie down with dogs, you get fleas. Did anybody say it? I, I can't hear. Did, thank you, ladies, for saying fleas. Thank you. So... That's the situation they're in now. There were two robbers on either side of Jesus in verses 27 and 28, fulfilling Isaiah 53:12, As Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, he's executed as though he were one of them, but the mocking isn't over yet. Now his own people, his countrymen, will side with the Gentiles and pile on his suffering. Look at 29 one more time. And those who passed by derided him. Wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, that's who you claim to be, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled for him, uh, reviled him. The evidence for these men that he's not the Messiah is that he's not coming down from the cross. Just think about the irony there. By fulfilling God's will, the biblically learned and trained and religiously conservative are denying that he is who scripture says he is. Jesus is given no quarter whatsoever. 
even as he hangs in agony. Those passing by in verse 29, like you don't have anything better to do? The chief priests and scribes in verses 31 and 32, even the two thieves hanging on either side of him in verse 32, mock him after the Roman soldiers had so cruelly done so. First, those passing by deride him about a statement that actually we hear him make in John 2.19. Destroy this temple, Jesus said, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they say, well, make good on what you said then. If you're so powerful, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you have power to do that with the temple, then come down off of there. Of course, like so many even today, they didn't understand or accept the full weight of what he was saying, that he's talking about his body. Jesus is the true temple of God, the only one. Now that he has come in his resurrection from the dead three days from now, that's what Jesus was referring to when he made that statement. Isn't it ironic that they mock him for this? Jesus' death means the end of religion as the way to be made right with God. So, of course, it means the destruction of its symbol, the temple, as the torn curtain in the temple is going to show us, God willing, next week in verse 38. But also, three days later, Jesus will rise from the dead as the conquering Son of Man and as the new focus of all true worship of the one true and living God. The Son of Man is the new temple raised up in three days, but in order to triumph, he must die first. For the temple to rise, the true temple, it must be destroyed. The chief priests and scribes mock him for what they perceive to be his inability to save himself from his death. Like, that's why he's not coming down, because he's not able to. That's not why Jesus isn't coming down. But if he was truly divine, he would come down from the cross and put an end to his suffering. Then, of course, they're saying, you know, if you did that, we would believe. No, they wouldn't. They had already seen sign after sign, miracle after miracle. They weren't going to believe him. They didn't believe Jesus was false because he didn't present enough evidence or wasn't holy enough or righteous enough or didn't practice what he preached. They didn't believe he was the Messiah because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Period. And so now they're just teeing off as far as they can see. Even the two criminals with him mock him at first. We know from Luke 23, 39 to 43, that one of these thieves believed on Jesus as his Savior before he died, but not yet, not in this moment. Here, Jesus is the victim of mockery in the midst of dying from the Romans, from the Jews, maybe Gentiles passing by, and from a few few thieves. Ironically, again, one thing they said is true in verse 31. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Would not is technically better, but the statement here is true. In this moment, if Jesus is going to be our Savior and feel the full force of everything sin does to us, not just the wrath of God towards our sin, then no, He can't save Himself. There's not another way. The Father has already answered that question. There's nothing Jesus can do to bypass any of this. If this is God's word that must be fulfilled as God has said through his prophets. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The Romans, the Jews, 
the Gentiles. This is a picture of the whole world in verse 32. I don't mean like it's just a symbol. This didn't happen. No, no, no. This happened, literally happened. But here in Mark's gospel, this is the world. This is the final verdict on Jesus from the world. It's a statement that summarizes not only the crowds, but ultimately everybody's rejection of Jesus. They do not think Jesus can be a king, ultimately, because kings don't get crucified. What we want him to prove, what we want Jesus to prove, is that he's a king as we understand it, as we desire. And if he isn't, if he doesn't exert his power to do the things we want him to do, even the impossible things we want him to do, then we should doubt him and question him. He can't be a king. And for this, we're sinners all. Right? We're all complicit and we're all guilty because we all want Jesus on our own terms and we doubt and question even his existence sometimes because he won't act accordingly. Sometimes in the depth of our sorrow and our pain, we will literally cry out and question God and say, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? And look, I'm not here to pile on your grief when you've reached that point. Not at all, because I've been there. I think most of us, if we're honest, have been there and would be there more often if we weren't afraid lightning was going to come through the ceiling and kill us. But you got to understand what Jesus is doing. He's bearing all of the punishment for that on himself. You and I are not going to feel that. He's dying to cover our questions, our misunderstanding, our doubt, the darkness of the pain that suffering brings. He's dying to cover it. He's feeling all of it. So when you need to scream, you go ahead and scream. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that it's covered. And sometimes Jesus' blood goes further than our sin. All the time. Not sometimes. Right? You understand that. It's not like an invitation to do it. But in the dark, when nobody else is listening, what other kind of sin is there but presumptuous sin? If Jesus can't bleed and die for that, there is no covering for it. And the cross is too deep. It's too deep for us to assume there's a place that this suffering can't reach and atone for. This is Jesus this is happening to. Right? He made wood. He made earth. He made all the things that make metal and steel that you make nails out of. He made thorns. He made bushes have thorns. Couldn't he have spared himself that pain by not creating thorns? This is who is dying, beloved. We're all complicit. We all want Jesus on our own terms if we're honest. And the biggest struggles of our faith come usually from two things. Our, our inability to overcome sin at the rate we think we should, right? That makes us question, but maybe I'm not even saved. Maybe this isn't real. Maybe it's worthless. There, there's, there's that. So now what are we doing? Again, I'm not piling on you. Please hear me. What are we doing when we're doubting whether or not his sacrifice is enough? We're mocking him. That's what we're doing. When it's either that, our own inability to overcome sin and to become as righteous as we think we should at a certain rate, given how many years we've been saved. Parenthetically, why do I talk to so many elderly Christians that are scared to death their sins are not forgiven? 
Why? What is, what is happening? What are we hearing that makes us think, I, I, I might not be, maybe what I did is too horrible. Beloved, it's horrible. It's atoned for. The shame that resulted from it has been felt. Right? The, the shame that you and I would cover ourselves with if God unleashed His wrath on us for our sin, Jesus took that on Himself and let it break through so that it would be atoned for. This forgives real sins that real people do. Alright? Enough talk about like, like, every believer will say, yes, I still struggle with sin. I'm not perfect. Well, corner him. What's the last sin you did? Oh, man, I, uh, I, I didn't read my Bible on Tuesday. Okay. When's the last time you lied? When's the last time, married man, you lusted and committed adultery against your wife in your own heart? Even as a professing believer. Right? When was the last time you, you, you coveted your neighbor's possessions? When was the last time you felt hatred for somebody in your heart? Right? And we always think that we're like Jesus so much that, well, it's righteous anger. No, it's not. Of all the things we could pull off, we could pull off righteous anger. Are you kidding me? Beloved, if this doesn't happen, including the mocking, including the shame, including the horrendous nature of it all, we have no Savior. There is no salvation. The cleansing we need is so deep, and the evidence of it is that we honestly think by living as good as we can, as trying as hard as we can for this many years in our lives, we'll somehow help Jesus out and atone for it. At the very least, we'll prove to God that we're serious. We're not this serious. And that's what it takes do you want to atone for your sins on your own? Subject yourself to this. That's all God will take. Wouldn't it be better to bank on His mercy and throw ourselves on His Son? God's not overlooking anything. He's just pouring it out on Jesus for you. And for me. This is the only King that is so royal whose throne and authority are so fixed and certain that he could give up his life to save not just his servants, but his enemies. The mockery of Jesus in particular really puts on display the sinfulness of humanity. Mockers in the Bible are part of the sinfulness of the world. That's usually where you'll find them in lists or descriptions of the depth of human sin and rebellion and evil, mockery, scoffing, the arrogance behind it are symptoms of a world gone bad, evil, a world unsatisfied and angry and bitter and impossible to please and vindictive, partly because we've been there. We've all experienced the pain. It's very hard to feel like things are going to be well or get better. And it hurts even more when you meet people that just, I just put a smile on my face and I know it'll get better, and I, I, you know, man, people like that, that's great. If you can do that, that is great. Most people can't. So God's anointed one becomes an object of reproach to his neighbors. 
in Psalm 31 and Psalm 79. Mockery and insults are a part of the prophesied suffering servant's life all through the Psalms, all through Isaiah. It's such a massive part of what Jesus is enduring as our substitute at the cross. The servant says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. It was the blasphemy. Do you remember? It was the blasphemous king of Assyria in 2 Kings 18 and 19 that taunted the people of Jerusalem. You remember what he was saying? Your king can't save you. Your God can't save you. Look at what they're saying to God's king in verse 31. He can't save himself. He can't save himself. In fact, it's the mockery of the nations in mass that will be the catalyst for God to reveal his name in the sending of this righteous servant to earth in Isaiah 52. And by not being saved by God, by enduring the mockery, he will save us. Mockery is the picture of what the world thinks of Jesus and God's salvation. It's all right here. And you've heard forms of this before it's a joke you, you you really want me to believe that my sins are so bad i need the son of god to die for me and that's god's plan he crucifies his own son it's a joke that god considers us all worthy of death this evil tyrant so so we have to be redeemed by no other way than the blood of his son that's disgusting that's brutal that's archaic right it's a joke that we're able to believe God sent his own son to earth, and that's who Jesus, this Jesus was. He's God's son in human flesh. He was killed. He, 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 he was suppressed. He was put down. So we mock and deride and disbelieve and jeer. In Hebrews in 11.26, the writer talks about how the reproach heaped on the Messiah was part of the suffering of Jesus that would perfect his people. Right? This, Jesus suffering this, is going to function to make you and I perfect when we believe by grace through faith. For by a single offering, this offering, Jesus perfects for all time, he says in Hebrews 10, those who are being sanctified. How does he make me completely perfect in one event? Because he's doing everything necessary, not only to wash me clean and forgive me, but make me fully righteous. Jesus makes it so God will not pour out his wrath on us anymore because we're no longer guilty, but perfect. And this is what God requires of us. Perfection. Don't lessen the law and lighten its load and its burden so that you can meet it. Don't look at Jesus saying, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and say, well, I try. I'm not perfect, but I try my best. That's not good enough. It's not good enough. Nobody in this room will ever be good enough or do good long enough to be more than Jesus is in this moment. And trying is not just spiritually flawed. It's mockery of Jesus to read this and understand what he endured and see what he endured and then say, I can do something to help atone for my sin is mockery of the worst kind. That's why we don't feel peace even when we're trying really hard to live well. Right? God's not blessing our attempt to lessen the intended effect of the cross. Paul links Psalm 69.9 
to Jesus in Romans 15.3 when he says that the reproaches that are heaped on God by men, they fell on Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. But beloved, Jesus suffers this reproach because God put him forward to be our wrath-absorbing sacrifice, and it was the delight of the Son to do the Father's will. That's how much they love each other. And that love, the love they have in themselves for each other, Jesus prays in John 17, we would have towards each other so that we would be one even as they are one. And just as more evidence of how much we need the cross, you let another believer do something you don't like enough times or that you really don't like one time, and you'll write them out of the rest of your life. Because we live by things like, well, you know, you can, you can, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. Then you haven't forgiven. Okay? And I'm, look, I'm not trying to justify anything that's hard to forgive. I'm saying, understand, be honest about what's happening. When you hear the commands of Jesus, tell the Father, I can't do this. Have mercy on me. Tell him, look, I need every drop of his blood. I need every second of his suffering. I need it all or I'm not safe. I'm not righteous. I'm not forgiven. Wash over me in waves, Lord Jesus. I'm too wicked. I can promise to change and mean it with all my heart and still can't do it. Help me. That's how we honor the cross, by needing it. Not by eventually being able to say, thank you for what you did. I can take it from here on out. And look, when, when the argument to that is, are you, are you just saying we, we, should, we should sin? You know that's not what I'm saying. You know that's not what I'm saying. Are you saying that there's a possibility you won't? Are you saying there's a chance you aren't going to need all this grace? Well, you, you can have that. You can have that. Mockery expresses the sinfulness of the world. Yes, as it pours out its contempt on the one who made us, yes. But it also expresses the wrath of God towards sinners. In Psalm 2, when the forces of the earth congregate against God and against His anointed to shake their bonds off from them, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Jesus is also bearing that derision for you and I, as he is mocked to the point of his death, beloved. And Jesus bore it all in our place. All of it. The story of the crucifixion of Jesus has might become so commonplace in our lives, and in one sense it's unavoidable, right? Because we do talk about it so much, and we should, we should never stop. But because we're sinful and, and we don't always grasp truth the way that we should, maybe over time it gets a little bit old, it gets a little bit commonplace, we tend to brush over the details. Or kind of the opposite extreme is we, we become much more passionate about like our Easter traditions being honored and observed than we are about actually feeling the force of the crucifixion and the resurrection that we might give God worship. So wouldn't it be good, maybe, for everybody in here, me included, maybe me most of all, because I'm the one standing up here yelling about it, if we just sat at the feet of Mark 15 for a while, 
Say, Lord, what, what, what needs to happen for me to be broken enough to accept that this is what I really needed as I sit here today? I'm not any less deserving of judgment, deserving of judgment than I was 60 years ago. But I won't receive it because of you. Teach me, Lord, how I should live and who I should be and how I should think towards you and towards me and towards others in light of the suffering of your son. He was not only bleeding for us. He was being reproached for us. God could sit on the bench of judgment and ridicule each one of us for an eternity for what we've done until the shame was so great we'd literally just get crushed by it. But for all who believe in Jesus, that will never happen. That's how sufficient Jesus is. He left nothing hanging around unaddressed by his suffering for us. And now we will never sit under God in shame. We'll only rest in his arms as beloved children. Shame is a horrible thing to bear. Especially when you know that you're loved. Right? I, all of us have probably felt, but when you were little, didn't you hate the shame of having sinned, rebelled or disobeyed, and your parents are merciful to you instead of punishing you? And in Jesus, it's all taken away. He's going to wipe the tears from our eyes. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? There are no tears in heaven. Why? Because God wipes them away. Somebody's crying. And he wipes the tears away. I forgave you for what you've done. And I don't want you to feel any shame and any pain and any guilt. It's addressed. It's over. I love you. Because God's a softy. It's just sentiment that's holding you and I. No, no, no. It's the blood and the suffering of Jesus and his resurrection that are holding you and I. All that we deserve, not just death. Yes, we deserve death. But the shame of our guilt, that was also poured out by the mocking crowd and the wrath of God on Jesus on our behalf. He is a complete substitute. He not only died to forgive us of all our sin, but to bear in himself all our shame for all that we've ever done and will do, that we would be made completely whole by his one sacrifice. Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't down on earth performing. He wasn't faking. He wasn't going through the motions. He was enduring and experiencing He not only acquainted himself with our whole struggle as humans in the world, he absorbed it. He took it all in. He felt the effects of the fall as deeply and as extremely as they could be felt. He bore our sins in his body on that tree. 
which includes sins we have done to others. Isaiah makes reference to both our transgressions and our iniquities, not just what we do, but who we are. So as you read that and think, well, that's just different words for sin. Transgressions is what you do because you're filled with iniquity. Guile, you and I. But the whole infected me was placed on Christ who bore my punishment in my place. That's why salvation is free, and that's why it's also final. He not only paid for what I did, he took the pain of what's been done to me and felt it until it killed him, that I might be completely whole. When God raised him from the dead, he raised me too. Paul says in Ephesians, my guilt taken away, justified and righteous, I now stand in his sight by the quality of Jesus' offering for me because of the extent of it. There's nothing in me that prevents me from standing accepted in the presence of God in light of what I am. And that's amazing. How complete of a Savior Jesus is. You ever meditate on this? How complete, how sufficient, how extensive, how expansive, how perfect of a Savior He is. Nothing about me is unaddressed. Nothing lingering that God's going to find out about later and decide to change His mind. We'll often experience shame still in this life. I want you to know that for all who are in Christ, it will pass. And one day forever. Forever. God himself accepts us in Christ. We don't have to justify ourselves or vindicate ourselves or get others to accept us. We're accepted in the beloved. Beloved. This is Jesus for us. For any and all of us. We are mockers and brawlers and victims and perpetrators. But Jesus took it all to be our all. So come to Him. Come to Him. There are Christians in this room that ought to come to Jesus in this moment. All are invited. I'll be here if you need to pray.